Welcome to the Oxley Bomb MotoGP podcast. Hey everyone, it's the Oxley Bomb MotoGP podcast back again on the last Sunday before the start of the 2024 season. How exciting is that? I can't wait to go to Qatar and see what happens. You know, the whole winter, everybody's saying, oh, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? What's, who's going to do this? Who's going to do that? And we're finally going to find out. So that's that's why we go there. That's what, why we watch. Um, so what we're doing this, <laughs> I've got to, got to introduce myself, haven't I? Uh, Matt Oxley, old racer, old journalist, and my podcast partner. <laughs> Peter Baum, old, uh, yeah, old crew chief, 25 years, professional motorsport crew chief, data recording, usually data recording, actually. Yeah. Cool. Okay, what we're doing this week is we... Uh, uh, if you've been keeping up with us on social media and so on, we're doing uh, a question and answer. So you guys have been sending in your questions via Twitter or X, if you prefer, via Facebook, via Instagram, and some really great questions, which I really like, because that means uh, we've got good listeners. You know what I mean? You know, we've got listeners who've actually, you know, love the sport and think about the sport and, th- th- you know, they just don't ask stupid questions. So congratulations to all of you for being fantastic. Right. The first <laughs> the first question is from Twitter from someone called Dan Rossamondo, who you may have heard of him. He's the uh, ah. chief commercial officer of Dorna. And he asks the most important question of this whole program, which is, where is the best coffee in the paddock? I'm sure Dan knows, but I personally, every morning I, when I arrive in the paddock, I usually go to LCR Honda uh, because I, I love the people there. Really nice gang of people. I love Lucio Chacanello. And there's always a nice buzz in there. So I go coffee there. And then I usually go to Aprilia and get another one there. So I get two cappuccinos in the morning and then I start work. And I usually drag Peter with me because he's too shy to go in on his own and ask anyone so so i drag him in with me and uh yeah so i'd say that's where the best coffee is in the paddock but don't everyone go there because i don't want to have to stand in long queue so yeah cool uh right next question is from lawrence peeney on twitter uh lawrence used to be uh used to do a bit of club racing and very well known for taking fantastic photos at brands hatch and other places he says are there too many motorcycle racing world champions i've always thought that from the outside looking in the number of champions that we produce every year must be confusing would it be better to just to have the MotoGP class providing a world champion and have everyone else, i.e. Moto2, Moto3, Moto3, competing for an FIM Cup or a World Cup, I guess. Um, Peter? Um, if you race all over the world, Matt, um, with Moto2 or Moto3, you're a world champion. We're racing in different countries. We do the same events, yes. But if you look purely at MotoGP for the amount of viewers, probably you need to go the Formula 1 uh, direction, which means there is Formula 1, everybody knows it, and nobody knows there is any other race class at all, and nobody visits it. Not sure if you want to go there. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. I know I'm kind of completely split on this one. Car racing... Like, there's no doubt who's the number one car racer in the world. It's the Formula One world champion. And and, and that gives them a, a big advantage, really, because, you know, if you're looking in from the outside, trying to get into motorbike racing, you're like, well, there's MotoGP and there's World Superbike. So, uh, uh, you know, what? <laughs> who's the real world champion? You know, who's the best guy? Which is, and, and I can see that, you know, there's no confusion in cars, is there? It's Formula One and touring cars. There's no, no doubt about which is number one. So I think if you want to attract more viewers, you need to make it obvious which is the number one championship. So I kind of agree with Lawrence that, you know, the others should be World Cups as opposed to World Championships, maybe. But I don't know. I'd probably get a load of abuse from that, from people for that. But 
I can handle it. Uh, okay. Next next question is from a guy called on Twitter uh, called Deathstalker. Uh, I don't know why he calls himself Deathstalker. And he's a re- retired 250 rider, apparently. He says, tell us about your first ever weekend working in a 500cc MotoGP paddock. What were you doing? And he says, Matt, that might maybe back in the, when the world was black and white. So please try your best. So Peter, what, what was your first Grand Prix as, as, a, as a worker? And what was it like? It was back 10, 2010 after the World Supersport, World Superbike in a year in AMA. I still remember because it, it does. Make, it's actually a really good question because it did make an impact. It, uh, after all these years, all these products, I still remember going again to Valencia. Valencia was not new, but now it was a new team. I met only the team manager. I got a ticket. I got a, a voucher for my hire car and I drove in the paddock being really, really nervous because it was a test Moto2, Moto3. It was the beginning of the Moto2 racing class starting. So it was yeah the first 250 just left, uh, left the paddock and the first uh, Moto2s came in and they went testing. And I was uh, for the Kiefer race team uh, asked to work for Stefan Bradl and Vladimir Leonov, a Russian rider. And I was really, really nervous because it's an, it's another class, it's another bike. I was really willing to go there because Moto2 was all about the sashi and the rider. And I love that. Even with, with data, I'm close to electronics. There was very few electronics on it. And so I was very nervous there. I arrived really early. The truck came in, they opened the truck and they showed me the bike. They lifted the, the cover from the bike and I saw the first Moto2 bike and I was really blown away. You know it from the pictures, but there is such a huge difference between production-based racing bike. We had R6s in Yamaha World Superbike, which were unbelievably high-tech and very nicely finished. I can say that because I didn't do it myself. We were really, really proud of the bikes that Carl Crystal finally became world champion with. But this Moto2 bike, this Suter Sashi, the swing arm, everything was prototype, except for the huge lump of energy that was in there, the CBR 600. <laughs> everything was so nice. And yeah, then starting to to work with some different level riders and, and, and a different championship. So yeah, but seeing the bikes the first time in the back of the truck wow, blew me away and yeah no that was yeah. I don't forget. It, I don't it, forget. What about you, Matt? I, I I go back even further. My first Grand Prix working as a journalist was the 1982. Uh, I started full time this job in 1988, but my first GP as a journalist, foreign GP, was uh, the 1982 Austrian and French Grand Prix. I, I went as a gopher for privateer Chris Sky, who was riding an, an RG500 in the 500 class. So, gopher, so, yeah. So I was basically writing a story about what it's like traveling around Europe doing Grand Prix. And and first place we went to was the Salzburg Ring. Oh my God! You know, scary, dangerous, fast place. But the atmosphere in the paddock was just fantastic. You know, the paddock back then was just this kind of crazy global village full of crazy people, and it was snowing during practice. And Randy Mamola was having snowball fights with people, and we were in the paddock cafe, which was like steam, steamy hot. We were sort of eating sausages and drinking beer, and and you know there was Kenny Roberts, Barry Sheen, Freddie Spencer, uh, Graham Cosby, Marco Lucanelli. Oh, you know, wow! I was just kind of, I was in heaven basically. And and then the, the next one I did was Assen the following year. I rode to Assen on a on a Goldwing, on a Honda Goldwing. And in those days, no one cared about anything, oh. so you could just ride into the paddock and park your bike in the paddock. So I rode into the paddock, parked it next to the Honda truck or something. And Lucanelli, who was what riding for Honda then, was like, "Oh wow!" Came, came straight over and said, "Can I sit on it?" Yeah, I said, "Of course you can." So he, he climbed on top of my uh, onto my uh, gold wing and, and and turned the stereo up to 11 and was sitting there jogging up and down on the seat listening to the music I mean just wow fantastic memories anyway uh, enough of the good old days uh, next question is kind of double question from two guys actually Martin G and on Twitter and and Keith Higgs on Facebook 
Uh, why can't the factories design aero? Oh, here we go. That encourage close rate that encourages close racing and overtaking to stop MotoGP <laughs> from becoming a procession like F1. Very good question. You go first, Peter. Oh, why can't the factory design aero that encourages close racing and overtaking? Well, we have that. Eh? It's called Moto Three. <laughs> very little aero, very little power, and that is that's the recipe for not only disaster <laughs> but also for fucking close racing. So there we are. But yeah, if you speak about MotoGP, it's another thing because these bikes as traditional motorbikes they can't use all their power but in extreme they 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 have way too much power and don't know what to do with it so part of that power they learn to transfer that extra power into creating downforce and that downforce creates low pressure area behind the bike turbulent wake behind the bike so that's more or less how we got there somebody realized that that we <laughs> that we that we forgot about uh, some area arrow and now now it's there and we open the can of worms you can't close it again it's there unless we we start to regulate it properly so getting rid of it's not an option because basically everything is arrow. You know, everything, even the angle of your of your screen on your fairing is is a huge part basically of angle, especially on the speeds that we are now. So saying ah, let's forget about arrow and do pretend like it's not there. That that's a bit too hard. So we can't get rid of it, but we have to manage it better in the in the regulation. So what what they speak about now, the rumors are not even almost really rumors like in 27 with the new regulations coming into play that will probably be a combination of less horsepower means you've got less horsepower spare to to use for create downforce and also putting sort of a of a limit on arrow which is a really difficult thing to do unless you simply say let's let's give a maximum of frontal area that your motorbike can have so if you would look really stand really exactly in the front of the bike and look at it everything you see with the bike and ride that together if you make it like flat that's the, the area that that the air arrives at first and that's a huge part of the arrow and if you say there is a maximum on that they have to make either close a very small bike with a huge wing or a normal bike with little wings so you give them still something to play something to develop i don't like the results from what arrow brought to racing but some of it i'm old but not completely like everything was better in the past some of it is really there is beneficial and will help us and then i'm talking about extra stability because the speeds look at Magello when we go over that crest and stuff like that that that's that was i mean speak to jack miller and he still loves it but these these guys are nuts to go over there with so little stability so yeah a little bit of stability but please please get rid of the so-called dirty air and you know nearly running into the back of somebody just because you accidentally happen to be there that that's bullshit that's where we are now yeah, yeah. well that's at least my point of view matt uh, yeah no I, 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 I fully agree i think what, what you talk about you know the the air stop problem you know where we had almost had those collisions in the last two races of last year where the guy runs into the vacuum the low pressure area behind and can't stop and that's at 200 miles an hour that's dangerous you don't want riders running into each other at 200 miles an hour it's not going to end well so yeah they need to they need to fix that but yeah you need some aero because if you're doing 225 miles an hour you need some front downforce because these bikes have so much torque they're still trying to lift the front wheel at that speed you know and and you don't want that happening when the rider goes for the brakes because if he hasn't got good front contact he's going to crash at 220 miles an hour so excuse me i've got a bit of a cough and a cold so you do need some aero, but I, I agree. I have no idea how, they, how they're going to do it, but they need to, I'd say, reduce aero by 70, 80%. 
and get rid of the devices, no doubt about that. But the, yeah, the problem yeah, is yeah. why the factories don't... Yeah, we get that later, the devices. Yeah, 100%. But why do the factories not build bikes that make great racing? They, they, don't, they don't want to make great racing, the factories. They want to win. <laughs> you know, they, if they build a bike that won the race, every race by 20 seconds, they would. You know, that's, that's their job. It's, it's the people in charge to, to make the racing good. And the problem is, in MotoGP, that the manufacturers basically make the rules. Well, they're very heavily involved. They kind of have the deciding um, voice, and that needs to change because well, the just the manufacturers shouldn't be like I say. They want to win. They don't want to make good racing. It's the people in charge, i.e., Dorna and the FIM, who should be saying, "No, no, no. We need to change the way the rules are made. Not change the rules. Well, change the rules, but also change the, the way the rules are made through the Grand Prix Commission, which features, I believe, someone from Dorma, someone from Dorna, someone from the SMA, MSMA, somebody from Erta, somebody from the FIM, and somebody else." I can't remember what so they can change that and say okay well the msma no longer have a deciding vote on the rules they, they the manufacturers don't have a deciding vote on the rules in formula one so why should they have in, in MotoGP? it's just stupid so they, they need to change the actual governance of the sport which i think they can do and you never know they might do that for 2027 i kind of hope they do yeah i i, I really do but yeah, I, I think get rid of 70, 80% of the aero. I mean, I love it in a way because it's quite fascinating, but I'd much rather better racing and safer racing. Okay, next question from Sandra Parsons. Uh, she says, do you think Dorna will sell to F1 Liberty? Pros and cons of the sale. Well, I'm... <laughs> me and Peter are not business people. We can tell you that. That's why we we, we basically really? we basically do what we love <laughs> Speak and for yourself and make a decent, re yeah. a reasonable living out of it. Let's say. So I don't really understand business, but you know, there's a lot of business papers saying that Dorna are selling, uh, are going to sell, and Liberty are interested. But the problem is that Liberty own F1, and when back when CVC, which is some bank, I don't know, <laughs> not really interested in banks, when CVC owned um, MotoGP, they bought F1. And the EU Monopolies Commission said you can't have both. So then they sold MotoGP, obviously that being the smaller gig. They sold uh, MotoGP to Bridgepoint, you know, the private equity company who have, I think, 39% now of, 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 of Dorna, of MotoGP. So I don't think Liberty will be allowed to buy MotoGP unless the monopoly rules have changed. But apparently also Netflix, Disney and Amazon are interested as well. I mean, this is just the world we're in, right? This is just the way the world has changed. You have these massive media conglomerates and they just charge around the world buying stuff up and either making it better or fucking it up. I mean, who knows? Any one of these people might do a much better job than Dorna. They might do a much worse job than Dorna. We don't know. But if, if I could choose one of those people, I certainly don't want Disney owning MotoGP just because just it's... <laughs> it sounds so wrong. It just sounds so wrong. Fucking hell. Um, and I don't want Amazon owning MotoGP either because, you know, ugh, they're rich enough. You know, Jeff Bezos doesn't need any more money. So I, if, if, if I could choose any one of that lot, I'd go for Netflix because if you want to grow the sport, you need to tell stories. And I think probably Netflix have got a better idea of how to do that than those other people. I don't really know, but that's my guess. So do you have any thoughts on that, Peter? Or is it just not on your radar? Not a lot, but we might have to turn ourselves into characters to to, to do something in, in the new soap series that's <laughs> the MotoGP will be. I love that. I used to be a character once in MotoGP because when you buy the MotoGP game and you choose to be a Moto2 or a Moto3 rider, then you come back to the box and suddenly my, my, my avatar was there waiting for you asking you how was the bike so it was fun 
I need to see a sale of that. I'm not sure if that's really my my target in life. Who's the funny guy in Drive to no. Survive? The ger- the German team owner. I can't remember his name. Gunter something or other. Who's just hilarious. Harsh. He's just yeah, so yeah, yeah. funny. Gunter Steiner. You know, and, and, and Gunter this, Steiner is uh, he is hugely famous because yeah, of Netflix. Exactly. Yeah. But that that that's what's important about He's a star. sport. You need <laughs> characters. You know. You know, racing is meant to be fun. Racing is meant to be fun. That's why people watch it. They don't watch it to watch a corporate show. It is a corporate show, but they want to be entertained and somebody like Gunter was just fabulous because he's funny and he's like oh I actually like watching this is good this is fun you know so yeah that's yeah. basically yeah. yeah it's good it's good I, I like it that that uh, characters can be a character and, and sort of automatically find a way as long as it's, it's automatically if somebody some director says this is funny this is not funny hmm, not yeah. so sure it's got to be natural it, it's that's be natural. a scary part of it it's got to be natural uh, okay. so it's got to be you or me basically <laughs> uh, I, I'm not sure if we swear enough I don't even <laughs> we swear. know what's funny yeah. <laughs> uh, next is Andy SPLC on Twitter. He says, before the spec ECU was brought in, what sort of things were manufacturers doing with the electronics beside the standard TC, anti-wheelies, etc.? Always wondered this as a controls engineering student. So I think Peter knows a little bit about electronics, I think, don't you, Peter? So so you go first on that one. Yeah, it's a long, first of all, it's a long time ago. And we went to spec electronics to calm things down a little bit because <laughs> some manufacturers really went mental with uh, with all the possibilities that, that basically are possible. But looking back, it wasn't rocket science what they were doing more or less because it's a long time ago especially in in, in the electronic world 2015 is a long time ago 16 we started with issue the thing i i i know that they did for example at one manufacturer is making the the traction control settings learning for themselves on the go so when they tell they instructed or learned that the, the issue to detect in every corner on the entry and on the exit of every corner how much he needed to help to get the right engine brake which was very small in importance at that time, but especially TC was really huge. And then sort of adjust itself that the next time you come to that situation, that corner entry or that corner ex- uh, exit, the issue was already... F- for example, like take an example. If you come out of turn one in, in Valencia and the ECU rec- needs to do a lot to keep the TC, to keep the bike under control, needed a lot of cutting in the ignition, for example, then the next lap you would come there, it would already, the issue would give the rider a lot less power at the same throttle angle. So it needed to fine tune less to take away less power. So that was self-learning. That that's quite that was quite a, <laughs> quite clever. As long as it in theory is perfect. That's machine learning, isn't it, basically? Machine learning is a, is a, is a computer learning from its own data, isn't it? No, <laughs> you think yeah, about we that are for getting a there. Yeah, yeah, it's you, close to to machine learning. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Still, somebody has really right to the algorithm to say if this happens and this happens and this happens, then you need to start to do this and there. There is always a little gray area between. I tend to call a lot of things machine learning and stuff, but I said, is that really still not the result from somebody writing the algorithm very correctly so it can do more? But there is a little area in between that. But it was definitely adventurous and clever. Yeah, on paper, it's beautiful. It's perfect as long as it's work, but writing the algorithm and make it for all the circumstances suitable still even at that time was what i heard from firsthand is that it was sometimes and that's the really interesting thing it was usually confusing for the riders because the issue started to do something that they didn't really expect and this in the heart is is really the center center of the real challenge of people that are writing electronic software that writing um algorithms and and help if you want an issue an electronic part to help human you get first of all confronted by the fact that you really 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 need to understand how we think and how we work 
how we make our decisions. If we don't, yeah. as long as we don't really understand how each human being or most human beings work inside the head, your electronics will always fuck them up or make them confuse them. And it did at that time. It did confuse them. So it, in the end, it sounds beautiful, but the guy on top of the bike is not another computer. It's a, it's a human. And so the downside was it, the fact it was not perfect was because it was it was confusing the riders. Yeah, I, I think Yamaha were the guy. They, they made a huge jump in 2008, 2009, making their you know, after they got their asses kicked by Ducati in 2007, Furosawa really, they just completely redid their electronics. And from what I remember at that time, they kind of, in 2008 and 2009, when Rossi won the championship, they were like, they were ahead at that point. They kind of, like like you say, the, so the, the electronics are actually judging the grip at every corner, how much tire the, grip the tire is giving and how yeah. much grip the track is giving and, 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 and adjusting it for the next lap at that corner. I mean, it's just mental to me. I mean, you say it's not rocket science. That, to me, that's kind of rocket science, you know. But, the, you know, the interesting thing about that is when they went to the spec ECU in 2016, it's a case of care for what you wish for. Because everybody was like, great, yeah, we're getting rid of all that ridiculously trick electronics, which I completely agreed with. You know, I think electronics should be basic. There shouldn't be too much of them. But what did the the anti-wheelie program on the spec ECU was rubbish because it wasn't, wheelies weren't considered a safety issue. So they got it was really bad anti-wheelie program. So what happened? They part started putting wheel- wings on the bikes. That's why the whole aerodynamics thing started in the way it's gone due to the shit anti-wheelie program on the spec ECU. So you know what I mean? So, so you know, everyone thought, oh, great. You know, we've got simple electronics now. And like, oh, boom, here comes the aerodynamics aerodynamics you know the downforce aero so you've got to be careful what you wish for when you change the rules because you don't know what <laughs> you change the rules you don't know what's going to happen and you can't stop gg or whatever you know exactly 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 okay uh next question from matt wells and and also freddie fredo q also uh fredo uh, also asked the same question which if the step that yamaha make isn't good enough for fabio quadraro where would you feel he would likely to go for a new ride ducati would be the obvious bet but would he like likely have to look at a satellite team and would he settle for that that. I'll I'll go first this time. Um, I'd say Aprilia. I mean, they they, they I, I believe that Alicia Spargro yeah. and Maverick Benales are out of contract at the end of this year. Alice might retire. Um, Maverick has been there how long? Two and a half years. Two and a half years, I think. Hasn't won a race, and it's a fantastic bike. It's a fantastic bike. A uh, really beautiful bike. And I think they still struggle sometimes to get the setup right every every race. I think they're a bit all over the place on that. But they'll get now they've got four bikes and twice the amount of data. I think they will get better at that. But I'd 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 say yeah. I think Quadraro on the Aprilia would be awesome because it's it's the V4 with the, with the best corner speed and I think Quadraro would be fucking awesome on it you know and, and I think that would you know they need they need a top 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 guy I mean they've got Vinales and Ishbagro are very 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 quick but they're not the top guys whereas Quadraro is I mean wow I mean I think he's probably the best rider on the grid at the moment I think you know, I think the, the way he rides that Yamaha is just, I love watching him because, yeah. wow, he's just all over the thing, wrestling it, you know, just squeezing everything he can out of it. So that's my feeling. That's what, I, that's what I'd like to see. I'd like to see him on a factory Aprilia. What about you, Peter? Yeah, well, first of all, the question is, would he look at a satellite team and would he settle for that? Well, if Mark Marquez can scale down to a satellite team, I think Fabio can as well. But uh, yeah, Ducatis and KTMs are full of winning riders and riders that can win for the next decade, more or less. So they're 
they're not really they don't need him and at least Honda and Aprilia Honda is, is a big question mark at the moment uh, has to be ridden in a way that, that that I can't see Fabio doing so yeah that leaves him with Aprilia that leaves him with Aprilia they're, they're almost made for each other because what Fabio is is Maverick Vinales 3.0 you know without all the all the all the problems but more or less the same crazy high corner speed talent and looking for that advantage and being able to be so smooth like Maverick does but without the downside of Maverick so yeah they're <laughs> probably they're already speaking well Having maybe, said that maybe we should also broken the deal we could be we could be Fabio's agent and take 20 percent, couldn't we <laughs> that's I'm gonna ring it really now after this pod, that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> no, no. The thing is, the thing is, Fabio is is riding his ass off at the moment because Yamaha with the Yamaha with Marco with uh, with with with, um, with his new guy coming from Ducati that gives such a new energy in the garage. He really, really is very happy with the way. I mean, I haven't seen Fabio in years this happy while being in P15. So being in P15 is crap, and that's completely against his nature. But he see that the way of working has different. There is a lot of new new energy in the box and the speed of working the speed of working even on a day basis let alone on month to month is changing so much in Yamaha yeah. that is also tempting for him to stay because yeah. Yamaha really does want to keep him interested and they put yeah. everything now on it so things can can move can change quickly the thing is that they've they've probably only got half the season haven't they because if that if the bike isn't kind yeah, of getting there by half maximum. the season maximum. uh yeah. Quadraro will just maximum. like be like you know yeah. everybody signs so bloody early these days yeah. that you know Aprilia will all, all already be looking for riders because they know that you know that they, they might lose or yeah. get rid of at least one there of should those be riders. a queue in Novala for the yeah. factory yeah yeah yeah, yeah there yeah, should yeah, be yeah. a queue for this bike because it's not only beautiful looking I, I mean I love the bike and the way it looks as well but it's a very very effective bike on its days it doesn't have enough of its days uh, that's down to the team it does have too many of shit days with problems that's also down to the team but it also has very specific riders Alize has never been a special special rider and sometimes he is special special so that, that is the Aprilia the good thing is he never gives up he always comes back and that's what Aprilia needed in the project so they, they, they have to thank him a lot for that and Maverick just shows that he's not the com- a complete enough rider way too fragile so a lot of people will be eyeing that bike and want to jump on it yeah 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 no I I, I hope I would love to see Quadraro on the Aprilia that would be fantastic uh, next question from a guy called Nee an account to view. I love people on Twitter with weird handles like that. Tires. He says, what? Oh, well, it might be a her. I don't know. He or she says, uh, Tires, why in the age of mountains of data, error packages, and enough computer power to simulate an alien invasion, do these mystical black round things still ru- rule the roost? <laughs> <laughs> nice question. Uh, you go first, Peter. <laughs> you want to? Yeah, maybe I'll go first. Um, I have to read my notes because that's how they are at the moment. As I wrote, data and simulation is measuring and calculating. It points the development into a direction, but it doesn't tell how to get there, just that you're not there yet. Plus, of course, that the bikes have changed a lot very, very recently. And the way the the bikes load a tire at the moment is so different. So plus, plus. So first of all, development of the bikes with the arrows and the right eye devices has moved quickly. 
summarize it, then tire development goes, can go reasonably, because especially a front tire needs a lot of time to, to develop. The other thing is, a new tire, again, has to be approved by all the manufacturers. So everybody's complaining about the tire, but as you're winning, if you're a winning team, if you make, if you're able to make the best out of that crappy front tire of Michelin, if your name is Ducati and Gigi, you will complain about the tire, but probably love to leave the situation as it is, and then leave the others struggling to do something with that same tire. That's, again, a reason why maybe the way we make the rules is not a very, very, very good way. Exactly. It could explain something, because it takes years already for, for Michelin to bring something reasonable. I can't believe that. Yeah, yeah. What do you, man? Well, first of all, I, I just last week, I, I went to a few of us were invited down to Clermont-Ferrand to see the Michelin MotoGP lab. Top secret, had our phones confiscated and everything locked away when we went in the in the laboratory. And it was, I mean, I mean, basically, you know, they've Michelin have copped some abuse off off us and off riders and engineers. And I, I, this was this is what PR is about. They they invited us saying, say, basically, look at how careful we are, look at how hard we work. And and it was amazing to see. You know, they X-ray every tire, every MotoGP tire they make is fully X-rayed. <laughs> Somebody sits there on a computer. Um, you know, there's obviously in an X-ray room the tire, and it goes around, and and they check that all the all the cords are in the right place, everything. Uh, so it's pretty amazing. We also saw a tire being made by the top secret C3M process, which which is what they used to use for making their overnight tires, which is basically 3D printing a tire. It is was astonishing to watch. Basically, virtually no one at Michelin is allowed in there because they're worried about other, you know, somebody leaving the company and you know working out how the machine works and buggering off to some some other tire company. But basically, the the tire is 3D printed on this machine. There's a kind of steel mold spinning around, and then this all these robot arms coming in and out, and all. I mean, it's just wow, mind boggling. Coming in and out and through squirting, laying rubber onto the mold through nozzles, uh, you know, and, and then the these kind of knitting cord things arms come in, putting in the the, the metal uh, rim beads, and then cro- you know the the radial cross plies and everything, and and then more rubber, and it takes about thirty five minutes for a tire to be made, and and then it's it's come it's comes all done all done by machine. It comes off that mold, or the mold ne- moves it across a couple of meters, and it goes into the curing machine, which is basically a, a kind of high pressure oven. Basically, it's the tire is put under massive pressure, ma- massive heat at 90 degrees, and out comes the tire. It was just to watch that process was amazing. And they're going to start making the front with that process next year. The new 2025 front is going to be made by that same process, which apparently allows them to be just because if you're 3D printing it, you can just do whatever you want. You know, you can design with the sort of you can put in different compounds here, different structures here. It was pretty amazing to watch. So um, I was getting a ball for you. You wanted to say something, Peter? But Matt, 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 stop, stop, stop. You said something about the Saturday night special tire in the past. Can you maybe explain that a little bit more to to our listeners? I, I know obviously what you what you mean. But... Yeah, yeah. So so back in the years of um, open tire competition, Michelin started doing overnight tires. So basically, they go to a track and on Friday, you know, obviously the tires would be made months before the race. And if the conditions, were, if the track was very different to what they expected, or the or the um, the weather was different, or the rider wanted something different, they'd do Friday practice and they'd gather all their data and they write, okay, well, what we need is this compound or this or this casing. And so they'd send all the data back to Michelin and Clermont Ferrand. The C3 C3M machine would go into action and make those specific tires. They'd make just enough of them for their favorite riders, like maybe their top four, top five riders. Certain Italian rider comes into <laughs> mind. Don't 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 say that. 
<laughs> and, and then they'd put them in a truck and they'd drive them to the racetrack, drive it across Europe, and they'd arrive, drive it overnight, uh, Saturday, Saturday night, arrive at the track in time for morning warm-up Sunday, because obviously the riders had to try the tyre once, you know, in warm-up before to make sure it was good. And if it was good, they'd use it for the race. And they won a lot of races that way, you know. And, and Bridgestone actually started doing the same thing in the Asian races. I mean, that was when the tyre war was getting crazy, you know, I mean, a lot of money being spent. But going back to the start of the qu- question, you know, why do tyres still rule the roost in this age of massive technology because they're the only thing that touches the ground you know they're the only part of the motorcycle that touches the ground so everything has to go through the tires you know you, there's no good point having a good chassis if you've got shit tires there's no point having a good brakes if you've got shit tires there's no point having lots of horsepower if you've got shit tires because Valentino Rossi used to say if you have 10 horsepower less you can still win the race if you've got the wrong tires you're fucked so yeah Peter no, he said Foucault. <laughs> Be careful. Fact, I think. <laughs> the, the, the interesting thing from, from, from a technical point of view is that looking back, you better realize what happened then when we were in the middle of it. But in the yeah, in the days of tire wars, as you call them, that Bridgestone went testing with, with Ducati every fucking weekend in Mugello and maybe in the middle of the week as well. They even had a test team in Japan. Everybody was testing that. The interesting thing is that you, the engineers made a bike and didn't touch it at all. Everything that was not perfect had to be sold by the tire. So they were making tires for the bike to work now that has changed a lot now now it's just okay guys these are the tires couple of front tires couple of rear tires some different characters but basically they are basically they are the same as feedback goes and see that it make make it work for you like Moto 2 did all the times with the Dunlops and are now trying to get their heads around the new Pirelli so yeah it's a completely different approach and I love it more because the times of the tire were also were sometimes very very unfair for some riders if you were not on that tire before you left the pit line you knew you had already one second behind everybody exactly. behind the good guys exactly I, rem- I remember the the, the 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 last season of open tire competition was 2008 and you'd go to one track and Bridgestone would be the first six guys and then the Michelin guy even though the, Mich- the first Michelin guy even though the first Michelin guy might have been better than all the Bridgestone guys yeah. then you go to the next track exactly. and the, it would be the first guys would be on Michelins <laughs> the first four or five guys would be on Michelins so it was it, it became a tyre championship not a motorbike or a, or a rider championship because tyres actually become more and more important you know in, in, in you know when they do all this computer simulation and everything it's all about tyres it's all about tyres because they're all that matter really everything has to go through the tyres so that's just the way it is you know tyres will always be the most important thing you just speak to any engineer i'm speaking to ricardo savin who's ducati's vehicle dynamicist he says it's all about the tires everything we do is trying to get the maximum performance out of the tires and the maximum endurance out of the tires that's all you're doing that's basically racing right next question from twitter from daxa halder honey she says hello big fan (laughs) i'm starting to feel like a radio one disc jockey (laughs) how do you how do you view the current global MotoGP fan base is there anything glaringly obvious you think dorna should do that might diversify and expand the fan base that they aren't doing already. What about their That's other for you. property world superbike? <laughs> well, okay, okay, I'll go first. As I said earlier, I think the government needs to change. So they need to make the rules to make the racing better. That's the number one thing. And the other, well, that's one of the things. The other thing, you know, the, the, we need to appeal to uh, bigger markets, different markets, you know, and the, and the markets where we can really expand our young people. Because, you know, motorcycling is a kind of, is an, it's an aging fan base. You know, you go to most events and, and most people are, you know, not young, uh, like they used to be many, many years ago. Uh, so you've got to get it to younger people and you've got to get it to women as well, which is, you know, because it's it's mostly sort of middle-aged blokes isn't it most motorbike racing when i go to a motorbike race it's mostly middle-aged blokes watching the majority 
Um, so somehow you've got to make it more attractive, attractive to the young people, which means people, some people hate drive to survive in F1 because it sort of makes it all a bit, it's a bit of a drama queen kind of thing, isn't it? But, you know, MotoGP needs to do something like that. The, 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 the documentaries it's done so far don't speak to people that aren't fans. They speak to fans, but they don't speak to, you know, we've got some fantastic characters, you know, we just need to make more of. Because it's characters that get people into 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 a sport. I mean, look at Rossi, look at McEnroe, look at look at Muhammad Ali. You know, it's the characters that make people watch sport. They want to watch superstars. They want to watch heroes. They want to watch people that are funny, amusing. You know, and all the riders now are just great characters. I, I, I love them, and we need to make more of them to sell the sport to a broader audience. Any thoughts, Peter? Yeah, yeah. The great character, the character thing definitely is a thing. I mean, we need less Pedrosas, less Ian owners, and we need more Bezekis. Uh, we need uh, Luca. <laughs> Marini, we, yeah, that, that, but that's the other thing that I notice is that World Superbike is doing so well because they have, first of all, the rules. The rules are made by not the manufacturers, and the rules are made quite fair, so everybody has a chance, and there's very little arrow, so they have a better championship. But women and a younger audience, that's new. I mean, we speak about two things. First of all, people that are already close to bikes, how we can we involve them more? Um, that's by making the show more bike racing. But to attract a new audience, I'm very, very careful. I'm probably not the right person you have to speak to. And probably, if you do it very, very well, new people, I don't like the result. I'm, I'm careful with that. Yeah. Because yeah. the, all the people, I live in Holland, so we all love Formula One. Everybody loves Formula One, but only because Max is on the podium every week. We have no idea what Formula One really is, but we go on Sunday to television to share for a Dutchie that's there, that actually never lived in Holland, probably, but whatever. <laughs> so, <clears throat> not too sure. These Formula One fans, I have very little in common with. I know, I know what you mean. And they can't tell me anything that is, that's for me remotely interesting about Formula One. So, I'm a little bit stuck between, you know, do we really need a new audience but try to get to, not to walk away too much from what for me at least motorbike racing in, a, in essence is, is is a technical sport with very very brave people I, I think it's possible to do both you know if you yeah it's a technical sport a with challenge. very very brave people but these bra very brave people are very interesting you know because what they do is is insane basically you know what I mean I mean they're sort of elbow to elbow at 225 miles an hour oh yeah I mean that's a good story to me you know and then I think you can do both I think you can attract an audience without putting off the the existing audience but the trouble is you know MotoGP needs money you know it, it's it's not rolling in cash like Formula One and you, if you bring a new audience that means more money coming into the sport and especially if you look at Moto2 and Moto3 wow I mean most of those teams are just running on you know they're, they're nearly out of oh. gas all the time aren't they they're struggling yep. to keep going and that's not good you know so we we do need more money. So you know I'm I'm all for trying to expand the fan base. Okay, next question from Graham Hardy on Facebook. Uh, how much do you think the Italian pride will part, play a part in the Ducati factory team if Mark Mark Marquez becomes a real contender for the title on last year's bike? You go first, Peter. A lot, but not too much because it will for them. It will for Ducati underline how good Mark is, but also how good every Ducati on the grid is. Yeah, they, but they have to swallow the pride a bit. They had they they already did that by allowing the thing to happen and they know what's gonna happen what can happen next either if he is delivering the goods as most of us still expect although qatar was a bit of a whoa okay an eyebrow raiser he can go straight to the to the factory team and everybody loves him in italy because when you're in the factory team you're god or at least the pope if not well we have enough people on ducatis to do to do the deal for them so interesting to see but they have a lot of a lot of pride there is yeah it's also interesting to see how how people like Martin, uh, 
how very, very seriously they take it to be, yes, not, yes, not selected for the factory team. I mean, they are able to piss off a lot of people by, by, <laughs> by telling everybody how they're going to choose and when yes and when not. And maybe, oh, there's, they always make, there's a lot of casualties around the Ducati factory team. No doubt about that. What about you, Matt? When you've got the best bike, you can just push people around. That's just the way it is. If you've got the, a rubbish bike, you've got to be really nice to people. Yeah, Please come and ride my do. bike. Yeah. If you've got the best bike, you can say, no, you can Comes natural there. We don't want you. We, we'll have him. You know, And everybody's queuing up because they want to ride your bike. I, I, I mean, um, and, and you, you look at how Ducati, the factory team, was with Pramac and Jorge Martin at the end of last season. It got pretty nasty between them you know, because the factory team really didn't want oh, to yeah. lose to um, the non-factory team because obviously they want to please their sponsors and everything. And that's the pride. Uh, the other thing about Martin, Marquez is you know how we're going to see you know how strong he is now how strong his right arm is now because the last couple of years he's been on a shit bike so you know and 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 and, and we know that was mostly the bike the, his lack of performance but you know we still don't know whether he's 100 back to 100 percent fitness we still don't know and i think we'll find out that this year okay the next one is from rupjot nijar on on twitter and he said oh it's a question for me this one uh, would you like to have raced in this era, Mr. Oxley? Oh, yeah. If yes, then with which team? And would I have liked to race in this era? No fucking way. No, I wouldn't. I really wouldn't. It's way too much like hard work, way too much pressure. These guys never get a day off. And the pressure during the weekends just, to me, looks unbearable. You know, the, 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 you know they're all chasing thousands of a second. And, you know, they're ri- literally, every time they go out in a qualifying lap, which is Friday afternoon, and if they don't make it into Q2, the, in Q2, in Q1, and then Q2, they are literally they're, they're risking their lives they are so on the edge that you know and if they don't make it into q2 their weekend's over blah 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 i really wouldn't it's more much harder than a real job you know in my in my day you went racing to escape a real job you know nowadays i, I think it's harder than a proper job I, I mean i would have loved to have raced and done grand prix in the 70s and 80s even though it was more dangerous those guys had a ball you know they raced they raced hard they partied they had a good time and to me yeah that just seemed like a much more fun time to race now they're just six six days a week every 52 (laughs) weeks a year you know madness i'm lazy basically as you might have worked out so matt would rather yeah you would rather prefer to to have 12 races and on 10 of them you quite likely die (laughs) instead of being a MotoGP where it's relatively safe at the moment but fuck you need to do so many hours a day and so many weekends yeah, so I'd many races the, so you're lazy the, but not scared I'd go that's for the what first, I take I'd, of it yeah, the, yeah I'd go for the first <laughs> option okay um <laughs> Uh, this is from okay. L- ML Valenti, 83. He says, or she says, how long until we see a Far Eastern com- country, i.e. China, India, etc., uh, manufacturing MotoGP? Is it relevant for them? Well, I would love to see an Indian. I would think Indian manufacturer is more likely that the Chinese have been in before. They were in about 20 years ago, weren't they? They had a 125 team. I can't even remember the name of, of the factory that was ran it, but that didn't last very long. And then we had Mahindra in, in Moto3, using an engine developed in Italy, I think, and Switzerland and they didn't last that long but i mean you know india is just it's just you know when you go that's what i love about going for the grand prix there that it's just a motorcycle country there's just motorcycles everywhere (laughs) it's just you're surrounded by motorbikes constantly some of them on the wrong side of the road some of them i love it i love it so i think it's the largest manufacturer of, of motorcycles in the world now so there's no doubt they have the money um but wow that would be a big deal you know they'd have to come in and and just basically sign up a load of engineers from ktm honda ducati well ktm ducati aprilia probably and yeah i mean it was a huge project but wow it's always nice to see a um you know a new manufacturer come in like like motor gp and, and and see that 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 project grow uh, what do you think peter 
yeah more more or less like you not a lot to add hero uh, is already in rally cova is in super sport 300 um yeah they come from huge markets what i've seen them doing in uh hero because i was i saw their head their headquarters in germany lately and i have some contacts in cova in super sport 300 and also in the rally team they use a lot the european know-how they don't send their own engineers they don't go there to also learn something they sort of find the most cost effective way to have some success there which is coming back to the question before we had with honda and yamaha one of the things i would like to add there or the thing i would like to add to there when why honda goes racing is obviously to promote the product but honda especially honda always use the racing to develop and to train their own engineers everybody who is more or less important in honda has been in the MotoGP team at some point no matter where they came from and no matter where they go from after that it's uh, it's a part it's one of the steps you have to do on the learning ladder in honda for for many many people which was very interesting because in that way you always win even if you have a shit year if you at least understood why you had a shit year your your engineers became a lot smarter at the same time even if you have nobody on the rostrum in the weekend so it used to be like that but a side effect from that thing is also that you waste a lot of, of talent and energy in your team and with the current speed of developments started at Ducati and now so normal in Europe you can't do that anymore now you have to be just made one team that's more or less stay together race 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 yeah. but they started from from two backgrounds basically promote the product learn our engineers which I love yeah. but that's history yeah, I, I mean, I think they work on a five-year cycle at Honda, don't they? Basically, so so somebody comes in and does that job for five years, and then they go to the car production um, after that. So th- there are I, costs to that, as Peter says. You know, okay, you're training your engineers, but but you know, somebody by the end end of five years might be getting really good at being a MotoGP engineer, and he's taken off and and sent to the Civic car plant plant in Suzuka or something. You know, so I think, like Peter says, they need to stop that. I met a guy like that. I met a guy like that in Honda when we were in 2002 or three we were in Estoril with the new CBR RR you know with the one that was new at the time with the exhaust under the seat and we were given an electronic package which was an ECU and a communication cable and a, and a, and a Windows 95 uh, program <laughs> and it all looked very very high tech because I was really uh, wow that's interesting we can do a little bit of mapping there's even a bit lane speed limiter in it wow that, that's MotoGP but things didn't really work uh, you know the drivers Japanese computers Japanese software and so on so we went to to the people from Honda because it was an official introduction from Honda H for the race team for the european race teams and the guy that was trying to help me with the electronics it was his job and he had really no idea he probably had never even seen a computer before later it turned out he did really probably has seen a computer before but he's never seen the program he was responsible for the for the issue settings but he just became responsible one week before before that he worked on another plant manufacturing manufactured fuel tanks or something for honda this was just his next step in the, in the career yeah. so that was already funny enough that the guy had no experience but he was responsible but that was where the fun stopped and the frustration started was when he was not allowed to ask anybody else we were not allowed to ask anybody else in Honda who was who knew better there were people knowing better but they didn't have that job title so a lot left left up to us you know that was yeah. really old school Honda yeah. really yeah. weird for us Europeans to to deal with a company like that yeah okay people we're, we're nearly out of time because we need to go down the pub so so a couple more questions and then we're going to be saying goodbye so I'm I'm, we've still got a whole list of so i'm sorry we're not 
if if you did put in a question and we're not asked it then i'm sorry but we're running out of time the pub is calling uh so uh next question is from instagram guy who calls himself braddle i, I assume it's not stefan braddle if you could see all the riders in a one make championship what bike and what track would you use Ooh. i'd go for the final generation aprilia rs250 at Magello. what would you go for peter yeah that was a good good question actually it's just funny thinking about it i settled in the end for stock thousand bikes like we have them at the moment like the yamaha and the suzuki not the bmw not a really complicated bike stock thousand bike a little bit of of race kit issue on it and then we go to phillip island of course and have the full race let's see <laughs> and you i'd actually go exa- i'd do exactly what Bradle says i'd go for a Prilia 250 at Magello. uh yeah because to me there's never been and there never will be a better motor race bike than a 250 gp bike they were just i'm lucky enough to have ridden a lot you know factory hondas factory yamahas factory aprilias back in the days when i tested grand prix bikes and and they're just oh my god i mean when i die and go to heaven go to heaven there's going to be a big racetrack and, and there's going to be a there's going to be a garage there full of 250s nsr 250s aprilia 250s and i'm just going to for eternity i'm going to whiz around and, and it could be aprilia uh, it could be Magello. that would probably be where i would choose because there's nice restaurants around there but the restaurants around Magello are better than the restaurants around philip island and and i have actually tested oh yeah uh, the aprilia 250 at Magello. i've tested max biaggi's 250 there a few times in the 90s in the sort of oh. earliest days of carbon brakes and I nearly killed myself on the thing once. Did the same on Duan's 500 around the same time. Basically, go out, you do your first lap, and you know, I'm, I'm a, I hadn't raced for five years, so warming up the tires, getting into the groove of it and everything. Go down the start, finish straight to start your second lap, and you know, you're going pretty quick. You're probably doing 170, 180 by the time you get to the end of the straight. Go for the brakes, and they're carbon brakes, and I haven't warmed them up on my warm-up lap because I'm stupid. I don't know what I'm doing. So I, I go for the brakes, and nothing happens because that's what happens when carbon brakes are cold. They don't work. So you, you know, you're doing 170 180 miles an hour and you grab the brakes and nothing happens and you go shit so what do you do you grab the brake even harder and what does that do it heats the brakes up and all of a sudden they come on basically it's like they switched on they reach operating temperature and the bike just threw me over the handlebars so i went over the handlebars and i'm looking at the number and i'm i'm okay. looking at the number one plate <laughs> upside down my my head is basically head butted the, the number number one plate and i'm thinking oh okay i'm gonna die <laughs> and but i'm still got hold of the handlebars and just luckily somehow i just when i let release the brakes i f- fell back onto the seat and just kind of managed to get the bike stopped fucking hell that was scary um all right what we're, i'm just looking for one last question to ask um blah blah, ah, yeah. blah 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 any of those most underrated rider in MotoGP? okay yeah let's do that one that's Wild from chris simcoe on facebook passively controlled arrow pick your choice no, i think we should go with chris simcoe who do you guys think is the most underrated rider in MotoGP? peter raul fernandez why just raul fernandez is underrated because he's unbelievably talented that's i know from following him in moto3 and especially when he jumped on a motor two bike yeah unbelievably yeah. talented but at the same time he will never become a world champion not even close I'm, I'm quite sure about that because he's his head is not the type of head you need to become a motor gp world champion so that's very sad actually but that's that's the way things go you know yeah the, the further you get to the top the more smart marginal gains uh, there yeah. are and he's just he's just not the personality not the character sure. to, to do that last step but fucking seriously gifted guy unbelievable yeah. unbelievable yeah 
uh, when, when, when he came to Moto after his, when he won the Moto 2 championship. No, he didn't win the Moto 2 championship, did he? He got beaten by Gardner, I think. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. But, that was, but that was his rookie season, wasn't it? I mean, he nearly won the Moto 2 championship in his rookie season. Is yeah. that right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, oh, wow. yeah so. you know, that's pretty cool. That's kind of what Mark Marquez did, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, that's so special about it. You know, that's what all these guys did. All the guys did. And, and he, just looked like a, he just looked like a killer. You know, and, and I just thought, wow, he's going to come into MotoGP yeah. and really shake things up. Yeah. But obviously, he, he hated the KTM, so that didn't work. He came to the Aprilia, and he just didn't seem to have it. I mean, and now he's getting into it. But the, the problem is, like Peter said, you know, it's not just about um, having the most talent. You know, you've got to have the right head that can be in that right psychological state every weekend. And you've also got to be highly intelligent to understand a million different things, not only about the bike and your riding, but how, you know, that's what Mark Marquez is so clever at, you know, the way he, he, he works over a weekend and winds people up and, you know, he's just very, very clever. So, okay. Also Brad Binder, he, he could he could learn a lot from a guy like Brad. Yeah. Brad is the opposite. Yeah, yeah, I, I love Binder. Well, yeah. well, here we go. This is the last Sunday before Qatar, so can't wait for the first race and we'll obviously be doing a podcast from there. I'm off there on Wednesday, I think it is. Yeah, so can't wait for that to happen. Uh, thanks to everyone for listening uh, thanks for sending in your questions and don't forget that you can support us at uh, www.oxleybomb.com throw some money at us if you like us if you want us to keep doing this yeah and that's about it i think thanks for listening and we will see you from qatar fantastic awesome great bye-bye